Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today on the week that saw Captain Kirk really go into space, we talk to the director of the Center for Space Law about future exploration. New vaccine requirements for staff are creating problems for BC's long-term care homes. We'll talk to their association president, Terry Lake, and we'll meet anesthesiologist Dr. Shannon Lockhart from UBC and St. Paul's Hospital, who will talk about the latest techniques in her profession on their 175th anniversary. So let's get started. As we uh, turn our attention to outer space where they just don't have rain issues ever. A pleasure to welcome Dr. David Chen to the program. Dr. Chen is the executive director of the McGill Center for Research in Air and Space Law. Dr. Chen is also the co-author of a piece entitled Space Exploration Should Aim for Peace collaboration and cooperation, not war and competition. He and two co-authors have this currently at theconversation.com. Dr. Chen, good morning. Welcome, sir. Good morning, Sterling. It's a real pleasure to be invited on the weekend morning show. Well, it's a Thank cr- you for the opportunity to appear. Well, yeah. it's a wonderful opportunity for us to learn a few things about how things work in space. Because, first of all, let's take a second, if you don't mind, Dr. Chen, and talk about the uh, the, the Air and Space Law Center for Research at McGill University. Uh, this sounds like it would be fairly recent, but in fact, you're about to, you're making plans right now to celebrate your 70th anniversary, correct? Correct. Yes, that's that's right. Correct. Uh, so we we've been around for uh, seven years, and it's our anniversary this year. Um, and you know, we we started really because of the development in first of all air uh, aviation, and then because of space activities happening in the 19, late fifties, mm-hmm. we added the uh, space component to to our research and to of, of course to our um, uh, education. Uh, when did when did the world, Dr. Chen, begin to recognize the need for even the concept of space law? It's it's pretty much almost immediately after the launch of the first space object, which is uh, as some of you uh, listeners may remember, Sputnik One in nineteen fifty seven. Sputnik, you bet, yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, a colleague of mine, actually the co-author, uh, Professor Stephen Freeland, he calls himself a Sputnik baby because he was born in nineteen fifty seven. Uh, and he, he sees it as his you know, life mission to you know, promulgate and, and inform people about space law and the importance of you know, having laws in space. Indeed. So, um, yeah. So when did, when, and we'll come back to Sputnik in, in, in a second, though. I'm just curious, just following the, the, the line of thinking about the need for space law, when did the world actually come up with some kind of agreement on a framework mm-hmm. for laws in space? Sure. Uh, so, so like I mentioned, it was very quickly after fifty-seven. Um, you know, remember this was at the very beginning of the Cold War, right? And there was a consensus among the two superpowers, the United States and at the time Soviet Union, that there need to be common understandings and common ground rules for how we use and explore space. Mm-hmm. And so, very quickly, they saw, you know, the, the superpowers saw the potential that you know space technology has for military and strategic uses. So they wanted to, you know, they wanted to develop, develop those capabilities, but at the same time, ensure the other one doesn't use it for, you know, nefarious offensive purposes, right? So it got together at the UN, um, and, you know, it's the 
In particular, it's a UN committee on the peaceful uses of outer space. Now, that's where all these states gathered to say, okay, so let's lay down some ground rules on how we use and explore uh, satellites, uh, outer space, uh, how we use satellites, and also how we use uh, celestial bodies like uh, like the moon. Mm-hmm. Well, it was that time uh, that uh, President Kennedy in the early 60s, when you're talking again, this is important to remember why and how a lot of North Americans, particularly Dr. Chen, th- still think of in terms of space, because John Kennedy helped for many of us of a certain age frame our thinking, stating, and you say this in your article, you use his quote directly, quote, if the Soviets control space, they can control the earth, as in past centuries, the nation that controlled the seas dominated the continents. So his concern was, we got we to gotta start a space race. We can't let the Ruskies get ahead of us. And that was a, comp- it was a competition right from, the, uh, from, right from 1960, when, of course, at the same time, President Kennedy uh, in- initiated the moon landing dream that did materialize. So, but in terms of, right. uh, of the terms of the way a lot of people in the world, especially here in North America, still think about space, it's still the space race for many, isn't it? Um, I think we have to kind of change our framework of thinking. Indeed, um, the world entered space kind of in the, in, the, in the height of the Cold War. And there was this concern, you know, we need to dominate. We need to claim superiority over space right. before the other one does it. Right. But I think we have moved on from that. You know, space has become really an integral part of our lives. You know, you know imagine you know, space is in our in our mobile phones, the smartphone smartphones that we use, you know, to plot about on our ho- way home. You know, it's it's space is being used to navigate, you know, aircraft and, and ensure the safety of passengers on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also allows us to observe and predict climate change, or even you know, as as you saw recently in BC, the devastating forest fires. All these, you know, observations and predictions are. are possible today because of state technology. So, yes, space techn- space the space race began in 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 a conflict or, or near conflict context. But I think because of the social, economic, and human benefits that space technology and applications have brought us, we need to move beyond and recognize that you know they are really interests and common goals that we can strive to achieve in space. And this is the purpose of the article that we, uh, we've penned uh, recently. Indeed. And, and it was interesting listening to Captain Kirk essentially reiterate what you, you say in, in a lot of your article in terms of the peaceful intentions, uh, people with peaceful intentions and the accomplishments they can create. But back to the, the competitive nature of it all for a moment, Dave, if you don't sure. mind it, sure. uh, it, it's because of China. Suddenly now, Mm -hmm. the Chinese, and they're about to launch a whole new thing. They're about to go with, what, a six-crew show they're going to launch very soon. Uh, Their their interest in space is the same as everyone else's. They want to develop it for their own intentions, but they also are not to be trusted in terms of non-military intentions. So there is always the the need, I think, for, uh, while trying to achieve common goals, there's also a need for vigilance. Would you not agree? Um, yes, I, I would agree. And, and, you know, because of the what we call dual nature of space and space technology. So dual nature basically means, you know, space applications can be used for both civilian and military purposes. Sure. So, um, um, you know, for example, the good example is the GPS, the American GPS system that we, we now take for granted. 
that actually has its origins in the United States military. Right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, like, like I mentioned before, there's so many spin-off technologies that have benefited all of us around the world. Um, indeed, you know, every country has an interest um, and, and, and is, is very keen to go and use space. And every country, according to space law, is free to do so. So, you know, China can do it. Russia can do it. The United States is doing, has, has been doing it for the last 70 years. Canada also, uh, to some extent, uh, explores and uses outer space. Um, I think we need to welcome the fact that you know, different countries and, and they're increasingly a lot of countries and stakeholders that are um, interested and capable of uh, using, exploring space and using space technology. But yes, there's always the concern that you know, such technologies have you know, the darker side and, and they can be used uh, potentially in, in like an armed conflict situation for nefarious uh, purposes. We're talking space here on the west coast of Canada this morning, and we're just delighted to have Dr. David Kwanwei Chen with us. Dr. Chen is the executive director of the Center for Research in Air and Space Law at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Chen is joining us today from Europe, and David, where in Europe are you this weekend? Uh, actually, in the Netherlands, uh, I just arrived a few hours ago. Um, ah, and thanks, thanks to uh, thanks to satellite navigation, of course, right? okay. that Ex- I managed to arrive safely. Exactly, <laughs> and we're talking about this. I wanted to just bring you, uh, and you've, of course, I'm sure, been following this story a great deal uh, with uh, the. Uh, Jeff Bezos sponsored trip to space for Captain Kirk, ninety-year-old sure. Montrealer Bill Shatner. Yeah. Uh, now, well, you know it's interesting because this provoked Prince William, the future King of England, to say this: "We need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live." This is Prince William. So Shatner says he's a lovely, gentle educator educated man, but he's got the wrong idea. The idea here is not to go, yeah, look at me, I'm in space. This is just a baby step, he says. The prince is missing the point. Uh, All it needs is somebody as rich as Jeff Bezos to say, let's go up there and start developing things. Interesting reaction to the space tourism industry that is rapidly developing. What do you make of all of this? Sure, it's it's, uh, and I understand there are you know concerns and criticisms that it's these you know mainly white male uh, older people who are going up in space because they can afford it. Uh, But um, I think the the benefits of people like Elon Musk, Bezos, and 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 Virgin's uh, uh, Branson, sure, is that yeah they they've been able to you know innovate and develop space technology and perfect you know or perfect uh, launches to such an extent that it's become much, much more affordable than compared to, you know, what a government is able to do. Indeed. So, yeah. So, so, you know, you were talking before the break about, you know, space competition. I think this um, drive by industry and commerce and private individuals to go up into space is diffusing that tech competition. Mm-hmm. Instead, we are seeing more private initiatives um, that you know, we, we of course we hope are for, for the uh, better, better benefit of humankind, um, and um, you know we're not spending billions and billions of dollars of taxpayers on on space development. It's you know it's it's money that these billionaires are, are forking out on on their own will to you know um, to improve access to space 
to improve, for example, internet connectivity and so right. on. Uh, around the world. Right. And you pointed out earlier, as before the news break, we were talking, Dr. Chen, about the spin-off benefits, so to speak, of what space exploration has brought us. And we're well beyond Tang these days, aren't we? And particularly, yeah. as you point out, these private entrepreneurs and the repetitive nature of their desires to get this done right have, in fact, created launch capabilities that are going to allow more of us to do more things in space to the point where, here in Canada, Canada, we're about to uh, create our own launch center in the Atlantic provinces, and that's not too far off either, is it? That's that's right. Yeah, and and I think uh, if you you know want to make comparisons, you know uh, the history of commercial aviation developed in the 1920s, so almost a hundred uh, a century ago, mm-hmm. and at the time it was seen as something for the super wealthy to explore, you know, strange lands far away. But, you know, with, with new technology, with more private investments, we saw aviation at the time become more democratic or popularized, right? So within a very short period of time, it was pretty much everyone can fly. And, and, and I think we, we can predict in the next decade or so, you know, the costs will come down. It's not just these billionaire superstars who are you know, going up there for mm-hmm. show. It's, it's going to really revolutionize the way we travel and the way we think about uh, our planet. And, and hopefully, you know, a lot of astronauts uh, like uh, William Shannon just this week, when they go up there, they see our planet, they see, wow, they have this so-called overview effect. Mm-hmm. This is our world. This is our home. You know, we share this planet. You know, we shouldn't be talking about borders. We shouldn't be uh, talking about, you know, dividing resources or conquering resources. You know, we have only this one planet. And also we have only this one space, which we all share. Our, our guest this morning, friends, is the co-author of a piece available today at theconversation.com entitled Space Exploration Should Aim for Peace, Collaboration, and Cooperation, Not War and Competition. And in your, uh, your article, you talk about, among yeah. many other things, David, preventing colonialism. What do you mean by that, that phrase? So um, there's a lot of interest about... Uh, exploring and um, so-called exploiting the moon for natural resources. Yes. You know, the scientists predict that, you know, there are, you know, valuable minerals on the moon and also other celestial bodies that really could help solve our energy crisis. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, we saw throughout human history, um, unfortunately, the approach to, you know, developing or, or discovering new lands is to conquer, dominate and colonize and exploit, you know, unsustainably. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to, we need to, again, have a different framework of thinking. We need to realize that sh- space and the moon and other celestial, there, there, there are shared resources, right? We need to be custodians of these shared resources uh, for, for our benefit and also for the benefit of our future generations. And this is, again, going back to, you know, the premise of, or, or the thesis or article, which is underlying that, you know, even at the very height of the Cold War, these conflicting superpowers are able to sit down and agree that there are fundamental rules of the game that we need to all abide by, which is 
exploring and using space for peaceful purposes. Right. Dr. Chen, do we have final question to you, sir? And we're just delighted right. to have you with us this weekend. It's so timely, David, to have this conversation with Prince William and Bill Shatner and all uh, the world's attention focused on this so much this week. Do we have, you're talking about, for example, and there's much discussion about uh, mining the moon and other uh, uh, other celestial bodies. Are there existing or uh, is there a legal framework? You're the executive director of the Center for Research in Air and Space Law. Are there laws already on the books that would regulate or govern in some way how we exploit these resources in space? Yeah, so there is actually one treaty called the Moon, moon Agreement, which laid down you know, the way we need to explore and use uh, space resources on the moon. Uh, unfortunately, not many states have signed up to that. So um, this is what we uh, lawyers uh, call there's a, there's a gap in the law because uh, not many states agree that you know these principles laid down in the moon agreement apply to everyone. So we're not going to sign up to that. But um, closer to Vancouver, there is the Outer Space Institute at the UBC, mm-hmm. which has recently proposed the Vancouver recommendations on space mining. And this is a very, you know, very important document put together by experts, academics, practitioners, and government officials, which, which lays down the guidelines on how we can exploit natural resources on the moon in a safe, sustainable, environmentally responsible manner. Right? So, so we have you know, two homegrown institutes at McGill, UBC, you know, both advocating for you know, better governance and better rule of law in outer space as we um, use this very important domain. Interesting stuff. And it's great that we're... Th- thanks for the, uh, the the tip, by the way, about the, the group out at UBC and, and the mining yeah. uh, work that they're doing, because we'll follow up with them. They're, they're right here in our backyard. Dr. David exactly. Kwanwei Chen, thank you so much for taking time out of what is clearly some some downtime uh, to join us from the Netherlands this weekend. It's it's fascinating conversation, and we're just thrilled to be able to have you jump in. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Take care, everyone. You too. Joined on the line by Terry Lake, the CEO of the Care Providers Association of British Columbia, here to talk about the vaccine mandate and staffing realities. Terry, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's talk, if you don't mind, Terry, just to refresh the memories. It's early on a Saturday morning. What is the current vaccine mandate requirement for long-term care homes right across B.C. effective this weekend? Well, starting uh, October 12th, uh, workers at uh, long-term care uh, homes, whether they were at the bedside or working in the kitchen or other departments, had to have at least one uh, of their vaccines and had uh, 28 to 35 days in order to get the second vaccine. If they only had one vaccine, they had to be rapid tested before every shift and uh, take extra precautions like wearing a mask. So we are at the point where people had to make a decision uh, to start their vaccine program or be put on uh, unpaid leave. And we saw probably over 1,500 people around the province uh, not get the vaccine and, and thus uh, on unpaid leave, which 
leaves the remaining staff under a lot of pressure, working overtime and uh, working very hard. Well, that's that's and that's the point of the conversation this morning, Terry, because let's face it, staffing in in long term care homes has always been a problem. And and I, I can't remember a time uh, in any conversation about the industry that there wasn't a, a, a staffing and retention issue at play. And now we have the uh, complicated by vaccine mandates. What what sort of cooperation level? Now, you said there are quite a number of people who have uh, declined. But what percentage of cooperation have you received? Received, Terry. Well, it's interesting, Sterling. When when the mandate was first announced, uh, we had about ninety percent uh, vaccination uptake among staff around the province. It would vary a little bit in different areas. Sure. And uh, before October twelfth occurred, uh, we got the uh, the number of people vaccinated up to about ninety five, ninety six percent. So you could see that some people were convinced by the the vaccine mandate to go ahead and start the vaccine. But that still left us with about 4% of the workforce that had refused. Now, we hope that some of those uh, will take the time to consider their situation and consider how best to protect those uh, for whom they care and, and start their vaccine. So if they do that when they're on unpaid leave a week after their first dose, they can come back to work uh, with the rapid testing and masking. And uh, so we're hoping we do see some people come back. And and maybe that's just the final push that would be required for some, the reality of it all. Oh, man, this uh, this is it. Either I get it done or I'm out of work. Suddenly that we're faced with that uh, compelling reality. Some people are rethinking their position. I think that's true. Uh, we've seen it in uh, the United States where vaccine mandates have been rolled out in, in different industries, healthcare, but also in the airline industry. Uh, and, you know, I think people might have thought that the government would back down, uh, but uh, thankfully they didn't. They also extended the mandate to uh, hospitals and community care so that uh, workers in long-term care couldn't simply change the, the sector they're working in in healthcare. Sure. And I think that made a difference as well. So, you know, overall, I, I think we're relatively optimistic with the number of people that have uh, started or received both doses of the vaccine. Our concern now, of course, is the, the rollout of the third dose uh, for residents mm-hmm. and also for staff members who have been longer than six months since their second uh, vaccine. Indeed. I'll talk about that in just a second. I just wanted to, just for your comment, as we learned over the weekend or in the last couple of days about a care center in Burnaby, Terry, where there are at least 90 COVID-19 infections. It's a big outbreak. 69 cases are in residence, 21 in staff. So that's, you know, a two to one ratio, basically. Uh, And that's, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, this is further evidence that this is quite real. It's uh, very real. Willingdon Care Home is a a really well-run family uh, operated uh, care home. They had no COVID during the first, second and third waves. And with the waning of the uh, immunity of residents, when the virus got in there, it took off like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is, is just tragic. And I feel I feel so badly for the residents, the families uh, of residents, and and also, of course, for the staff who have been working so hard for 20 months to keep their residents safe, and then this happens. Indeed. Now, let's talk about booster shots, because that leads to that, because you've mentioned it already, and we are seeing uh, a a mandate now for booster shots for residents of long-term care facilities province-wide. Has that program begun already, Terry? Well, it was supposed to start two weeks ago, Sterling, and it is 
barely underway. Uh, in Alberta, they have completed uh, their vaccination of all long-term care, assisted living, and in fact, independent living residents. Uh, yet we only started ours uh, two weeks ago. So if we had started uh, the third uh, booster here in BC at the same time as Alberta, it is unlikely that Willingdon would uh, would have had an outbreak. It's certainly not one to this uh, to this level. So that's that's our concern. Is that we all knew this was going to be necessary. The FDA approved uh, in the United States a third booster for this this uh, cohort of people. So you know we could see the way things were were going. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Henry was waiting for the National Advisory Committee on Immunization to to say it was okay. But of course, NACI that committee was silent during the federal election and that's why provinces like Alberta and Ontario said look we know that these doses are going to be necessary and they started but we did not start here and even when we did start Sterling the health authorities um, were not sort of given uh, a runway they were told to start third uh, doses uh, but they were flat-footed there were no uh, off-the-shelf plans to to launch the, the campaign right away and that's left uh, literally thousands and thousands of vulnerable British Columbians uh, without their third booster, and and things like Willingdon are happening. Yeah, Terry, does the booster program for senior residents of long-term care homes also extend to their caregivers, the staff? Well, it should, but it doesn't, unfortunately. Again, we have staff, uh, and many of whom are in their 50s, um, that were vaccinated in July and uh, sorry in January and in February, so they're they're beyond the six months recommended for a booster, and um, you know they're they're scared. They're working in environments where COVID is getting in, and they don't have their third booster. And even as a, as a happened in Willingdon, when there are extra doses, uh, the health authority um, uh, staff are unable to give those to the care home staff because uh, Dr. Henry has not okayed the third booster for uh, for care home staff, which, you know, is uh, very disappointing when you see people working in an outbreak environment unable to get that third dose when it's sitting in a vial and being carried uh, out of the home by the health authority uh, staff. It, it, it's, it's very frustrating. Frustrating and doesn't say it doesn't really appear to make a great deal of sense in the process, thus the increased level of frustration, Terry. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, we seem to put bureaucracy ahead of everything else. Um, it would take one word from, uh, from Dr. Henry uh, and, uh, and those staff members, you know, could receive those extra doses, especially in an outbreak situation. Sure. Feeling, you know, start there and make sure staff are protected as well. Uh, but, um, you know, Dr. Penny Ballum is uh, supposed to be managing this vaccine rollout. And yet, as I said, health authorities uh, appeared to have no plans in place. And, uh, you know, that was the point of having someone coordinate the vaccine program was to make sure we're ready to go and that, you know, all these plans were uh, were in place so that we could get those shots in arms as quickly as possible. But instead, we're going to be probably another month before we complete uh, the most vulnerable residents of British Columbia with that third booster. Interesting. Terry, a final question to you. You We're grateful for your time this morning. As we've discussed the difficulty in staffing long-term care facilities at any time, and now particularly with the the extra layer of COVID protocols and so on, uh, have the employers in the long-term care sector 
modified or improved the offer and the conditions that their uh, these positions represent in terms they're paying a little better, hours are more structured and predictable, those sorts of of remedies to attract more people to the to the jobs. Well, the uh, care for seniors uh, in terms of nursing homes and uh, assisted living is largely uh, subsidized by the provincial government. So operators can only uh, provide the level of service and, 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 and salaries and benefits uh, that their funding allows them to. Sure. Now, fortunately, the province has stepped up with wage leveling to make sure that every uh, health care aid in the province is making uh, you know, a, a decent wage, a minimum of $25 an hour and going up from there. And of course, so much overtime has been paid uh, over the last uh, 20 months because of the shortage of workers. But what we really need to do, Sterling, is have a concerted effort, both at the federal and provincial level, to train more health care aides, more nurses, both uh, practical nurses and registered nurses. And we need to bring and streamline uh, pathways for internationally educated nurses. We have uh, hundreds of internationally trained nurses in BC that mm-hmm. can't get into the profession because it's uh, such a cumbersome process of credentialing them. So we we really do need a concerted effort to address the uh, the human resource crisis that we have in healthcare. Indeed, and the remedies, in fact, are as plain as the nose on your face. In some cases, they just need to be addressed so we can open a few doors and get a few things done. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we get into this uh, jurisdictional dispute, uh, province versus federal government, but uh, we need to work together because some are squarely in the, uh, in the court of the federal government, immigration pathways, for instance. Funding uh, generally comes uh, from the province, although uh, there is a contribution by the federal government. So I think working together, but it has to be coordinated, it has to be intentional. And so we're going to be pressing both levels of government uh, as a sector to make sure that we address this crisis. Terry, thanks very much for this. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, We do appreciate your time, especially on a Saturday morning. Thank you, Sterling. It is World Anesthesia Day today. I knew that one would catch you by surprise. Here to tell us more is Dr. Shannon Lockhart. Dr. Lockhart is a consult anesthesiologist at St. Paul's Hospital and is also on the faculty in the UBC Department of Anesthesiology, Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Lockhart, Shannon, good morning and happy Anesthesia Day. <laughs> good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's happy, a pleasure. Uh, happy World Anesthesia Day. Well, there you go, Shannon. Tell us a little bit about this. This is the 175th anniversary. This is kind of a conspicuous day for people in your profession. 175 years ago, the anesthetic, an anesthetic, was first used in a medical procedure. What was that anesthetic 175 years ago? Yeah, Sterling, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, It is a monumental day for us uh, in history. That anesthetic delivered was ether. Ether, okay. We, we've come a long way from that uh, that these days, thankfully. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, ether was delivered by actually a physician physician dentist in order to facilitate a neck surgery, and that was the first public appearance of uh, anesthetic. So big day. So now, uh, what is the most common form? Uh, you're right. That's 175 years ago, and mercifully, we have pr- pr- well improved our delivery of uh, anesthesia, anesthetic products over the years. What's the most popular form of anesthetics used today? 
Oh, that's so funny you asked that, Sterling, because that's a frequent question that patients will ask before surgery is, sure. what type of drugs are you going to use on me? And and to be honest, um, we're, we're a pretty goal-driven profession with lots of options to use. And so the type of anesthetic that we'll use will depend on what's required by the patient. So, you know, there's IV anesthetics we can deliver or gas anesthetics we can deliver. There's pain medications we can deliver. And so what we'll give you for your surgery is a cocktail depending on uh, what what your needs and the needs of the surgery entail. So it totally varies is my my answer. (laughs) But you can understand how some of us, okay, most of us, have very limited recollection of our encounters with the anesthesiologist because typically when we arrive in the OR and we've had that conversation, you you already have discussed with the patient what sort of uh, anesthetic product they're likely to receive based on the procedure involved. But by the time we actually roll in to get it all done, we've been given a little something to relax us. So it's kind of fuzzy in the first place and then you're there and okay, we're going to get you comfortable here and you're probably going to go to sleep soon and that's it. That's the last recollection we have of our interaction with you, the anesthesiologist. I guess you get used to that over time, huh? Yeah, you're right, Sterling. If I've done my job well, you don't remember very much and and, uh, I think that's why uh, what we do in anesthesia is somewhat poorly understood. I remember applying to residency and going to a, a production where they interviewed people in a mall and asking if they think anesthesiologists are doctors and at least half of people didn't know that anesthesiologists were doctors Uh so actually what I was hoping to do was um, give you a quick snapshot of all the other ways outside of the operating room that anesthesiologists function and I can do that um, taking a patient who's broken their hip Um, so say a patient comes in who's broken their hip, um, they'll come into the emergency department and for whatever reason, say they're on blood thinners, they can't have their surgery for a couple of days. Well, an anesthesia care team will go down to the emergency room and visit them in order to give them a nerve block to prevent them from being in pain for those. Sure. Okay. And then we'll go back up onto the ward while they're waiting and visit them to make sure that all their medications are in check. All their medical illnesses are healthy in a healthy enough place so that they can safely have a surgery. And then, only then will I see them, or we, their anesthesia care team. So tons of nurses, um, lots of anesthesia assistants. The surgeon, of course, will see them in the operating room. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they'll go to the recovery room where um, we'll, an anesthesia care team will watch them in order to make sure no complications happen. If complications do happen, they come to our high acuity unit where anesthesiologists take care of them postoperatively. And then even on the ward after the surgery, we still go to visit them uh, as a pain team, an acute care pain team, and also sometimes as an internal medicine team uh, to make sure no complications happen after. So we're seeing patients in many places outside just the operating room, for sure. All right. Uh, Dr. Lockhart, just a personal question, if you don't mind, Shannon. Why did you choose this particular aspect of medicine to pursue as a career? Oh, that's a great question. Um, You know, there's lots of reasons. I think on an individual level, as you can imagine, I'm seeing patients at what's a particularly vulnerable time. Sure. Um, So I really enjoy that sort of um, deep and kind of essential rapport uh, that you need to establish. And so that can be, you know, for an emergency case, reassuring someone that I'm going to take good care of them or during a cesarean section uh, while, you know, a family is having such an important time in their life. I find that really fulfilling. I think on a day-to-day basis, my job is so team-oriented. I, I never really don't work in teams, and that's a really wonderful 
um, way to function, really fulfilling. And then I think broader, uh, what anesthesiologists are always doing is uh, assessing the system, the operating room and perioperative system for ways we can make things safer, um, make things more efficient, and just really improve the patient experience. So that's a really satisfying part of the job, too. Would it surprise you, Dr. Lockhart, if you went out to that same mall this afternoon and got out of the rain and asked 100 people whether they thought anesthesiologists were doctors or not, and half of them still Mm -hmm. didn't? Would that surprise you even a little bit? You know, I have to say, I think our profession has come into a bit more of a known sphere for the public. I think just with COVID, you know, we appeared on the cover of Time magazine. And so I think that, of course, did a lot to uh, spread people's um, knowledge of what we do. But I still think um, what we do is relatively underknown. And and as you alluded to, if I do my job right, um, most people (laughs) don't really know I'm around a lot, right? That's right. So here in BC, now the reason I I came back to the doctor question uh, with you this morning, Shannon, is because here in BC, there seems to be some trend toward uh, including nurses in the delivery of anesthetics. Uh, is Is that a trend that is likely to widen out, or is this something that is of concern to uh, those in the profession? Well, I think what's interesting, and and I think that's been going on for many years, discussion about that. I think what's interesting about it is that nurses are already such an integral part of our anesthesia care team, as I've mentioned. Um, And right now, we have quite a shortage of critical care nurses, Mm -hmm. as it stands, as many people have heard of on the news. You know, our system is pretty stretched with a burnout, as people are also aware of. So it's interesting to me that you would want to pull um, nurses from that sort of setting um, to contribute in a place where I feel like anesthesiologists, as I've mentioned, are, are you know, providing broad perioperative care, not just inside the OR. Sure. So, so I think, you know, if we want to address surgical wait lists, we can address a lot of things in a lot of ways, and that's what anesthesiologists are working on. The BC Anesthesia Society is working on that right now. And so, um, you know, bed shortages, nursing shortages, there's just so many places to address that um, shortage and and something that anesthesiologists, one of the system-based things that anesthesiologists are actively working to help be part of the solution for. Interesting stuff. Dr. Shannon Lockhart, I imagine you and your colleagues have a wild party planned for World Anesthesia Day, and it's still early in the day, so we'll give you a chance to get at least another cup of coffee before you head out to the bash. Thanks very much for doing this this morning, Shannon. A very enlightening conversation. We do appreciate your joining us. Thanks so much, Sterling. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.